I want us to look together at the second half of 1 Timothy uh, and chapter 1. And if you've ever heard of imposter syndrome, uh, people who speak about imposter syndrome, they don't feel that they belong, that they've arrived somewhere, perhaps in sporting field or uh, in music or uh, acting. And they, do I really belong here? And they feel that they're imposters. Well, surely, of all people, Paul must have felt an imposter as an apostle. How, how on earth have I arrived in this position? Well, Paul uh, overcomes imposter syndrome by reference to Christ's dealings with him. And that's what he uh, unpacks for us in the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice then, first of all, Paul's installation uh, as an apostle. Uh, he's mentioned the fact in verse 11 that he has been entrusted with the glorious gospel of the blessed God and he wants to unpack uh, how that happened, that he of all people was entrusted with it. And so he speaks of his installation into the uh, apostleship. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service. It was Jesus doing, first of all, his installation, his ordination as an apostle. It was Jesus doing. Jesus gave him strength. Jesus considered and judged him faithful. Jesus appointed him to that service. It was Jesus doing. And Paul acknowledges that readily and freely. And when he says that Jesus considered me faithful... I think he gives us a glimpse uh, back in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, and chapter 7 and verse 25 of his sense of that. He's speaking about uh, the marriage of uh, virgin daughters. I think he says, about virgins I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. (laughs) The Lord considered me faithful, but it's by his mercy that I'm trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 25. It was Christ's doing that he is an apostle. It was Christ's doing, and it was an act of mercy and grace on Christ's part. Paul's character would seem to disqualify him. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man a blasphemer who slandered and spoke evil of Jesus and his followers, a persecutor who pursued them with hostility uh, in Jerusalem, going from house to house, searching them out, then travelling to distant towns as well to hunt for Christians. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent. He was insolent and injurious in his deeds. Not uh, uh, pleased just to imprison them, uh, he would put his vote against them uh, in terms of the death penalty, as he did with Stephen. Surely that disqualifies him. A blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. I was shown mercy. 
we might translate it, I was mercied, if we can make that word up, I was mercied uh, by the Lord Jesus. Uh, it was undeserved grace to me, that, uh, uh, that the character that I was, that I was appointed as a apostle. It was mercy. I was shown mercy, he says, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Perhaps Paul is thinking of that uh, verse in Numbers 15, verse 30. Anyone who sins defiantly, that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. His guilt remains on him. Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly. I didn't actually know. I was in the dark about Jesus' true identity. Uh, I was not sinning against the light. Uh, I was in the dark. He hadn't committed the unforgivable sin. As one commentator, uh, Lang, says, his ignorance did not at all merit forgiveness, but it left the possibility of it without impairing the holiness and righteousness of the Lord. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, uh, unaware of who Jesus was, uh, and uh, uh, acting in that manner as I did uh, towards him and his people. Uh, I was mercied, uh, and then uh, developing that verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me, Abundantly. The grace of our Lord, over, above, beyond, abounded. It's one of these words that Paul likes to use when he heaps uh, uh, phrases together to make a compound word. Over, above, beyond, abounded. The grace of our Lord to me. We've seen, haven't we, some terrible uh, uh, pictures of floods in uh, Europe, uh, now in Turkey. And elsewhere, uh, the devastation of, as uh, rivers overflow and flood uh, from uh, their courses. Well, some of the image that Paul picks out here, the grace of the Lord abounding, overflowing. Uh, John Stott says, what the river of grace brought with it, however, was not devastation, but blessing. Grace flooded uh, a heart previously filled with unbelief. Sorry, grace flooded with faith a heart previously filled with unbelief and flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hatred. That's what the grace, the flood of God's grace brought into Paul's life, who was before uh, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. His heart was now flooded with love. The one who acted in unbelief is now a believer because of the flood of God's grace to him. Uh, the flood of uh, Christ's grace uh, to him, uh, even though he was such a desperately wicked character. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As Paul reflects on his installation as an apostle, it, it amazes him that he was chosen, that, that he was mercied in the way that he was, that God's, uh, Christ's grace was poured out on him. It's a wonder and a, 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 a cause of joy in his heart as he reflects on it. 
Paul's installation. But that leads him then to think of Christ's mission. Christ's mission in verses 15 and onwards. Because Christ's personal dealings with Paul was not Jesus acting out of character. His dealings with Paul were in perfect accord with his mission. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So as Paul reflects on his call, he said, well, that's exactly what Christ does. Christ was acting in perfect keeping with his character. He came into the world to save sinners. That's exactly what I was. What I am. I am the worst. He didn't say I was the worst. I am the worst, the first, the chief. It's telling, isn't it, that earlier in our uh, chapter, we uh, were reminded that the law condemns sinners. Uh, as uh, uh, that list of uh, sins was uh, opened up. And I think it's the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, that Paul is thinking of there. If you, you, you can trace them and, and uh, line them up with uh, the Ten Commandments. The law condemns sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners, uh, we know uh, it's those who miss the mark. You would have been watching the Olympics. Uh, I watched one of the, uh, the pentathlon events uh, where they do uh, these various, the modern pentathlon, uh, pentathlon, do these various events. One of them was uh, they had to shoot a laser. They used to do it with rifles, but now they do a laser uh, pistol and they have to shoot the target, hit it five times before they can go on to the next part of the uh, activity. Well, we, we miss. Sinners are those who miss. And we miss, and we miss the standard that God has set. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those who fail. Those who uh, don't live as God has commanded. Jesus came to save them. To deliver them from the uh, curse and condemnation that uh, breaking God's law brings. Jesus came to rescue and deliver sinners. How? As we're going to remind ourselves when we come to communion, by bearing our sins in his body to the tree, taking our sins upon himself, and bearing the consequences for our sin under God's judgment, by shedding his blood as of a lamb without blemish. He was sinless pure, undefiled, and his blood was shed in our place. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And that's worth just pausing there to think, look at that list again that we read earlier in the chapter. We know, verse 9, the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill or strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for adulterers, for homosexuals, for slave traders, for liars and perjurers. Paul puts himself top of that list. 
And yet, Jesus saved me, he says. I was number one on the list, and yet Jesus saved me. And indeed, he saved me as a prototype of his mission. Verse 16, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul is the prototype of Christ's saving mission. The worst of sinners. I was chosen and saved so that Christ can display his, uh, William Tyndale translates it, all long patience. He might demonstrate his all long patience as an example, as a prototype for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Can I be saved? The, the things I've done, the, the sins I've committed. Yes, there's mercy, there's grace. Look at Paul. Remember what Christ did with Paul. You can save uh, the worst of sinners because he saved Paul and he's ready to save the worst of sinners because he saved Paul. Isaac Watts, in depth of mercy, can there be mercy for me? The chief of sinners? Yes. Yes, there is mercy. There was mercy for Paul and grace abundant. There's mercy for us and grace overflowing as we come believing. This Deliverance from sin and its consequences is ours as we believe in the Lord Jesus. It's an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. That's how we're saved. Uh, Not by reforming ourselves. It's by believing in Jesus. Trusting him as our sin bearer and sin saviour. And as uh, again Paul contemplates that, he Burst out in uh, adoration, verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. But just notice the attributes of God that come to Paul's mind when he considers God's grace to him. The King eternal, literally the King of the ages, the sovereign dispenser and disposer of all things in this age and in the age to come. King of the ages, sovereign over all. The immortal God, imperishable, indestructible, incorruptible. The invisible God who is spirit uh, and not made up of uh, body and parts. Not perceptible to human sight. The only God. We might have expected Paul to think about the attributes of God's goodness. That God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. But he doesn't. He thinks of the attributes of God's transcendence. The things that separate God from us. Because there is no God... Alexander McLaren, the preacher, the Scottish preacher, there is no God that men have ever dreamed of so great as the God who stoops to sinners. It's this great God, this transcendent God, 
who in Christ has saved sinners. <laughs> and so Paul wonders at that. This glorious God, this majestic God is the one who has stooped to me to rescue, save and deliver. Some uh, modern worship songs are almost, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend. Well, that's that's not Paul's theology. God is much bigger than that. It's this great, awesome God that he worships and bows before. Paul's installation as an apostle, it's a, it's a wonder to him. And yet it's, a, it's an act of Christ's grace, which then makes him think of Christ's mission. That's exactly what Christ does. He saves sinners and brings them into eternal life as they believe. But then that leads finally into Timothy's obligation. Paul has reflected on these. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction with keeping in the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight. I think the instruction he's speaking about is the one that occurs earlier in verse 3 of our chapter. I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command. It's the same word for instruct. You may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. So that's the command he's speaking about. Uh, I I give you this instruction about preventing uh, other teaching so that by following them you may fight the good fight. See, Timothy has got an obligation now to fight for the truth of the gospel. As Paul's reflected on what the gospel is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Timothy will need to fight for the truth of the gospel. And he's to do it in keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you. I think these are the prophecies that were given when he was ordained in chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul again refers to that. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So when he was ordained, Timothy, uh, into his ministry, uh, uh, there was a prophetic word for him. Of course, we don't know exactly what that prophetic word was. We, we don't know what it was at all. But I wonder if it was something akin to what the prophetic word that Jesus gave to his disciples when he was commissioning them uh, in John 15, for instance, John chapter 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus goes on in John 16, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. That's a a great commission, isn't it? (laughs) When the disciples, it's going to be tough out in the world as you work and witness 
for me. Paul surely had the same prophetic message when he was ordained into his ministry. Listen to what he says in Acts 26. Acts 26 and verse 15. He's recalling before Agrippa his conversion on the Damascus Road when he hears the voice in Acts 26 verse 14, the light comes from heaven, we all fell to the ground. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. But notice what he said, verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Paul's going to have difficulties when he's commissioned as an apostle. He's going to face opposition. Well, maybe that was the same sort of message that Timothy had. It would be in keeping with these others, wouldn't it? Timothy, it's going to be tough for you in your work and ministry. Pressure. And there's going to be pressure to abandon the message. There's going to be pressure to tone it down. There are going to be those who are twisting it and perverting it. Timothy, you've got to fight for the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That this was his mission. There are others going to tell you that Christ had other missions when he came to the earth. And we see that, don't we, sadly today. People think that Jesus came to do this or to do that, uh, to save the environment or whatever it might be. No, Jesus came to save sinners. And Timothy, you've got to fight for that. Because it's the only saving truth uh, that the world needs. And you've got to do it holding on to faith and a good conscience. He says in verse 19, some have shipwrecked these, so some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. John Cook in his little Let's Study, uh, 1 Timothy, the Banner of Truth, uh, little commentary says, we may think of conscience as the helmsman of the ship that carries the cargo of faith. When his voice is not heeded, the ship will go off course and be wrecked on the rocks and the cargo will be lost overboard. Which is what happened with these two teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. He uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5 about handing over to Satan uh, the man who committed uh, sexual immorality. It's part of uh, uh, his uh, discipline, church discipline, that they're being excluded from the church and put back into the world, as it were, Satan's domain, in order to recover them. Uh, to bring them to their senses. I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You see, he wants to, by discipline, he wants to win them back. So they've got to learn something and recover. To blaspheme, uh, uh, Richard Yarbrough says it's to misrepresent the faith, to slander it or otherwise speak evil of it. These are the sort of meanings that attach to the New Testament occurrences of the word blaspheme, to misrepresent the faith, 
slander it, speak evil of it. And so Timothy has an obligation in the light of Christ's mission to fight for this truth against those who would pervert it and twist it and deny it and take people off in other directions as those teachers were in Ephesus. So Paul's installation as an apostle of Christ, which was a, a, an example of Christ's mission to save sinners, leading to Timothy's obligation. Well, surely again, we, we're reminded, aren't we, that mercy and grace are our only plea. At my mum's funeral uh, a week ago, uh, I quoted from uh, John Wesley. He says, for 50 or 60 years, I've been travelling up and down. We mentioned Wesley and his travels. He travelled miles around the country. I've been travelling up and down, trying to do a little good for my fellow creatures. He says, when I reflect on all that I've done, there's nothing to look at for salvation. My only plea I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. And mercy and grace is our only plea, not our performance, not our effort. It's Christ's grace to us that we have to rely on and acknowledge and trust in. And surely there's also a challenge. Have you believed in Jesus? The one who saves sinners. That's what was his mission. Have you yet believed? Do you trust Jesus as the one to save you from sin? Your sin of whatever die, uh, however shameful, have you trusted Jesus? Have you believed in him? He will save you if you do. And as God's people, are we ready to fight for the gospel? to defend it against those who would pervert it and deny it in order that it may be proclaimed in clarity and fullness to a dying world that we may see others saved and Christ thereby glorified as the sinner saviour. Well, may we learn these lessons for the glory of Jesus. And in his name we ask it. Amen.